McCartney recently did an interview where he talked about his writing, his writing skills in terms of data. So, um, you know, he took in a lot of good information and applied it in a very unique way. And that is what our panelists have in common with Cindy. They're not all talk, they are action, right? You guys have worked on various types of uh, data analytics programs, working towards outcomes, and we're going to do a bit of storytelling use case discussion, telling about your experiences, the promises and pitfalls that you've actually seen in your own programs in fintech and contract an analysis and looking at bias and compliance and privacy, et cetera. And um, in terms of uh, promise and pitfalls, I think of it in terms of smoke and fire. So Thomas Redman, he's the expert um, on data who writes for Harvard Business Review. He's the data doc and he says where there's data smoke, there's business fire. So when we're using data well, it can be a smoke spotting strategy where we're spotting the fire before it happens. Um, we're seeing the smoke and we're, we're tracking that so the fire doesn't need to occur. And when we use it poorly, we have Cambridge Analytica, you know, setting fires intentionally or unintentionally, not seeing the smoke, false smoke. Um, so Charles, I uh, was maybe going to ask you to start in terms of what you've seen in terms of promises and pitfalls in application? Sure. Uh, sure. So just, there's a lot of thematic threads going through the conversations today. And I thought I'd actually maybe diverge a little bit from the question to really give you some context. I, I always, you know, every time I, I'm asked to speak at events, I kind of ask myself, why? <laughs> and then, and so, so the obvious uh, uh, vector for me today was an experience I will share with you in a, in a few seconds around some work that we've done at TD Bank in uh, leveraging data and analytics in the contract space. Um, and so I touched on it, that a bit earlier before, but it occurs to me now that, um, you know, speaking to the theme of how do you get comfortable with change, um, I can share with you my own personal experience and maybe that'll inspire you, uh, maybe not, but. In terms of other things that I do with the bank as well is, is managing uh, the legal risk associated with almost every single somatic thing that was talked about, blockchain, AI, innovative automation, so not AI but automation, um, cloud, privacy. And so it's the, we, in the, the position that we are in as legal advisors in this capacity really is a very um, opportune time if you have an interest. And there, there's just so much happening right now, and it's really exciting, actually, because for a long time in my career, at any event, you were working based on precedent. And so I was a transactional lawyer by trade, like, like Dan, M&A activity, financings, commercial, complex commercial arrangements. But, you know, to a certain extent, those are rote. And as a matter of practice, we operate in a common law jurisdiction that works off precedent. And so what's fascinating with sort of my practice as, as it exists today, I would say I don't even practice law anymore, it's all first principles. And so a lot of these things that we're dealing with now, just as a matter of staying curious, you have no choice. <laughs> and so it, you know, if you want to learn, find a way to put yourself in that situation of managing the legal risk in those areas, and invariably you will, you will learn. So in any event, so getting to the more practical example of sort of why I'm here, um, I kind of had, it was a bit of stars aligning to a certain extent. And so some of the conversations earlier this morning were, you know, around leadership and then it evolved to or it pulled on the thread of needing to have a problem or a burning platform. 
And so my, the problem that I was faced about four or five years ago was likely a problem that you all face in resourcing your uh, internal legal team. It's really the problem of too much work and not enough people. And so we all know the, the current economic environment and what that means from a resourcing perspective. You're like, you're, you're, your budget for staff is likely flat, if not declining. I can pretty much guarantee your work is not staying flat, <laughs> and, and, and it's also getting much more complex and happening at a speed that uh, we haven't seen before. And so staring back at that, staring at that problem, I realized, you know, something, we had to do something. It, was, it wasn't sustainable, and nor was it creating the best kind of work environment for a very um, talented and rare commodity within the bank. And so um, stars aligned in the sense that we, I was, at that time, because we are a regulated institution and we have to manage risk in that area, we're required um, through guidance issued by our regulators to know our deals. And so what do I mean by that? Part of that is you have to have a way of assessing uh, risk or the materiality, as I like to say, of the particular transaction at hand. And so in order to enable that, you have to have a way of asking the right questions and to a certain extent, triaging matters as they come in to associate them within a risk scale. And so because that had been enforced since the late 1990s, um, we had the benefit of having years of information on hand. So every single transaction that had come in had went through that risk triaging process. And so I saw an opportunity. We had lots of data. We never really used that data in any sort of meaningful way other than on a, sort of a per-transaction basis to assess the inherent risk at that time. And so we took that information and we had to, it, we analyzed it, um, spread it out over the years to look for trends, and really that brought us to a, a point in time where I could crystallize the problem. And so that was a, a turning point in the conversation with my management where prior to that it was, so Chuck, tell me how, how are you feeling? And other than saying, God damn it, we're busy, like <laughs> we need more people, it was a discussion now that evolved to, well I can tell you this is what we've been working on, we see uh, the tr our, we are trending to this, we see that the demand for our time is here, we, um, you know, we otherwise, as a strategy, want to deploy our, our lawyers working on elements for the bank that are the most risky and strategic. But I can tell you, based on the math, we spend 20% of our time servicing that, or 80% of our time servicing that portfolio, which is roughly only 20% of our work in, in, in pure volume context. And so we have a problem. We have a problem in the sense that the inverse is also true and that we're only spending 20% of our time servicing 80% of other work. And it's not that, that and the other work is still important, it's just not as high on the spectrum as some of the, the work that we're otherwise focusing our time to. And so at that point in time, I had, a, I had a thing to point to and something to build. And so it took a number of years to um, source the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the effort, but in working with uh, Dan, who at the time was at one of the Bay Street law firms and uh, with Exigent, we ultimately came up with a solution um, which allowed us to effectively stay flat from a resourcing perspective, but add in capacity into the system to play the role that we wanted the lawyers to play in that, what I call the bulge, that 
area of work that wasn't the top 20%, but otherwise work that still had to happen. And so and none of that would have been possible without having that information at first in, uh, at my fingers, fingertips. So. And how did your team react in terms of that measurement quantification driving resource allocation decisions and actually being measured in a way that lawyers aren't used to? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I was lucky in the sense that um, I had buy-in because the, the activity here was really to help them. It was, uh, what we wanted as an outcome was creating an environment that allowed them to work on the kind of work that they thought was most interesting and taking away the annoyance of the, the, the daily pecking of things that really shouldn't have been coming to them in the first place. But, uh, but just uh, to get you to talk a bit further on this, it wasn't just buy-in from your legal group. You were also running point, um, getting, getting the necessary buy-in upstream from executive management. M maybe touch on that for a second. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough that my leadership was supportive of the activity. And again, in terms of stars aligning, it had absolutely no uh, impact from a, like a, a numbers perspective in the sense that, uh, as much as it sounds odd, we had a council on our team who, in fact, left in-house practice to go into private practice for the first time in his career. <laughs> Usually it's... Uh, yeah, you know it. there's a something <laughs> happening when... And so, so, and so, so that is to, in and of itself is eye-opening in the sense that you have, you're living in a dynamic where y you can inspire someone to go back into the craziness of private practice. And so that's not, you, like, you know, if you didn't know something was wrong, then you know something's wrong at that point. Um, and so because of that, from a you know, it, engaging with my upper management, it really wasn't a discussion around needing more money. I had the budget. And so it was really looking at an alternative way of resourcing to that demand. Um, and in fact, we've learned some really interesting things through that process. And one of the ones which I'm sure will resonate with all of you is that we dispel the myth. Um, and so I'm sure you often hear that the legal department is viewed as, as a bottleneck in the process. Things go in there, they get lost, they get stuck, they take forever. And I can tell you that because we had created a system that now measured through our uh, suppliers, um, an SLA in terms of turnaround time and response, and because that's what they do, they're an analytic analytics company, we were able to articulate to the rest of the stakeholders in the bank that in fact it wasn't us. And so that in and of itself created a much different dynamic discussion with our other stakeholders in the bank and frankly allowed us as an institution to focus on other areas of the process that were otherwise not being looked at because the perception was, was that it was being stuck in the legal department. So we have management buy-in, we have um, actual data-driven decisions, improving working environment, and improving, improving outcomes. Um, and what about pitfalls? So I think that, Dan, uh, my uh, just, understanding just before, is that... Just, just before you move to the pitfalls, sure. I mean, Char Charles has kind of expressed this all very matter-of-factly, like it was no big deal. This was 2014 when this saga began, and, um, and what we were doing was completely unconventional. And and um, and there was a trust component as well. So Charles was a very well-known entity within the bank, well-regarded as a really solid guy. And Charles and I had worked together at that point for more than a decade successfully. 
And so when we, when we sort of came up with this new platform together, which involved uh, offshore labor arbitrage, a whole bunch of new analytics and ways of looking at things, you know, he then had to sell this. And, and I cannot tell you, like, that was a non-trivial exercise with executive, I mean, right up to the GC of the Toronto Dominion Bank. And, um, and I think it really ultimately was about trust. And so we've talked, we talked about that theme earlier today. I just don't, I don't want to gloss over this. Like he, Charles sort of, the way, the way that came out a moment ago, this is what we did. And so, you know, then we went off and had success and it was much more complicated than that. And he was running all kinds of, um, you know, all kinds of blocking really to get the thing done. Like the procurement people, if I remember correctly, initially were really not happy uh, about the platform and how this would work and what it might mean to their role and what they had visibility on and might not have visibility on. And, you know, and, and I was largely, um, I was largely shielded from that. That was something that, that Charles dealt with and, and he, he made it happen. So I, I think one of the key things that, you know, just to, to make a note here is the importance and we've talked about this, the importance of buy-in champions for the platform. And, and you know, if you're going to do this, you have to get that buy-in. And it's non-trivial sometimes. Right, especially when there may not be a precedent for getting that buy-in. I mean, bank and transformation, those two words don't often go together, and that's what you did. And so um, was that process a pitfall-laden one? Or um, because now we have things like people analytics and, and social analytics looking at you know, how those decisions, how we move forward and actually act based on data. So, you know, Microsoft looking at uh, meeting bloat being a key reason why they lose people. And um, social analytics looking at, okay, when are customers actually motivated or, you know, internal or external to act? So, um, yeah, wondering about the, the pitfalls that you would now, since you ran that block process, that you'd, you'd spot in advance to tell people to... It's interesting. I mean, um, like one of the things that we did learn um, through the process was, again, you you historically would have operated under certain assumptions, and um, we had a, a fundamental assumption in our resourcing model, which I suspect is probably pervasive. And you think about how lawyers engage with their business partners is that it's a fairly high touch model. And so what I mean by that is that to the extent there's a widget that comes in, you know, out of the 100 that come in, see or touch 80%. Or there'll be some level of engagement. And so I can tell you one of the things I lear we learned through uh, our relationship and still continue to learn because we are now measuring it is that in fact our touch point was a lot lower than we thought. <laughs> a lot lower. <laughs> what was the number again? 14%. Right, that's, yeah. And what did you think it was? Well, I think it was a combination of things. I think it was a combination of, you know, in parallel to this process, uh, not to go into too much detail, we actually, we also revamped all of our uh, tools. And so there was a, a relaunch of um, all of our precedent agreements with, you know, substantiate, supporting uh, playbooks. And so to a certain extent, it was because we were enabling a lot more self-execution uh, within a program and to, to, to sort of manage that risk. Um, but, you know, coming back to the pitfall, I mean, the pitfall then is all of a sudden you have this out there because it's, it's supported by empirical <laughs> evidence that 
where you, where you may have otherwise been saying, well, we're engaged in everything, and, and so because of that, or we're engaged at a high level, and so because of that, we need, need a certain level of staffing, we now have the, op the number saying something different, right? And so it's one of those things that you, you, uh, you will have some assumptions as to what the data may produce, but you really don't know until you actually start getting results. Um, and so it, it, you know, just be mindful of that. Um, now, in our case, you know, we had, at that time, we had not enough people to do the work. And so there wasn't really any risk of there being attrition because of the results that were now being uncovered. But um, it could be possible in a different circumstance. Right, and I see Dan has given a microphone to someone in the audience. So uh, is there a question out there that you'd like us to, to answer on promises and pitfalls? Thank you, yes. Um, uh, my name is Bill, and um, I've had some experience in changing legal cultures and going through some processes that you have. It seems to me that uh, trust and leadership, as we've talked about this morning, plays a big role, and, and you talked about some of the influences on the um, other stakeholders. But with the attorneys themselves and the, and, and the legal professionals themselves, whom you have on your team, uh, different ways of working are, are difficult, and I'd like to hear about how the team works differently in this, in this, and what your some of your problems with buy-in and, uh, and and how you gain trust and, and sustained trust through all this change. I mean, this was an easy one, frankly, because we were creating an ecosystem now where we could enable our lawyers to spend the time on the mat on the work that they felt was most interesting, um, and so that's that's a really easy sell. Um, because effectively what we did is we as a we created a proxy system in the sense that the the services that we were effectively outsourcing they were playing a role that was otherwise the role for a lawyer on the internal team but for a certain managed subset of work right and so going to management buy-in like there's a lot of rigor put around the process to define what are the things in that bucket that we are comfortable putting through that process. And so that, that, that's the story you have to be able to tell and then show that you have processes in place to ensure that that happens and also to QA, right? So part of the program we built was going, going back every year and actually QAing through an independent party the work that was done to ensure that we're living up to the standard that we otherwise set for ourselves. And so, you know, the impact on the team has been really positive because now all of a sudden, like there's been no, uh, we haven't had anyone leave that team in the four or five years since it's been started. We've in fact brought in uh, three additional resources to that team because the work that we now know that we want them to spend time on continues to increase with innovations like AI and blockchain and cloud computing. And so um, it's really allowed us to leverage our resources in a way that is, uh, adds the most value to the bank while also still having a program that allows us to service areas that are just as important, but perhaps not as high up on the strategic curve, so. And, and just to state the obvious, Charles, the, the lawyers were uh, pre prepared to be subject to some level of data analysis, and they were okay with that. And, and so the reason I raised that, and Bill's already nodding, is because in uh, work with another bank, not the TD Bank, uh, another bank where we set up a platform that was not dissimilar to the one that we had successfully set up for TD. We ran it for a pilot uh, time period, almost a year, and at the end of it, 
the bank did not proceed with it. And, the, and it took me a long time to understand why. It, it had been successful in respect of you know, revealing all of the, the same kinds of analytical insights. And what came back was, and this is a cultural thing, the lawyers did not want to be measured. They did not want to be measured. So Dan, did you, uh, was there any way to propose um, some form of anonymization of the data so that they wouldn't be personally tracked as Sandy Pentland has done with his uh, social physics, social analytics program at MIT, um, tracking social networks and decision-making roles and incentives rather than actual user IDs and people? No, I mean, the, so this is a real-world example. I can just tell you what happened as opposed to what might have happened. But uh, in that case, we, we did not proceed because the executive that we were dealing with, the, the general counsel in that area, could not get into a, a comfort position with her own people. And I think they would have felt if we'd come back and retooled the platform to say, you know, now, you know, it's, it's, these analytics are not on an individual basis, but now on an aggregated basis, I don't think they would have believed us because we'd shown that it was possible to do it another way. So um, I, th I think one of the key things here, and this is a human behavior point, which I think was probably one of the things that Bill was, was you know, alluding to in his question, is that human behavior and the, um, the capacity to accept this aspect of oversight is a very sensitive thing. This is a real cultural thing here. It has a lot to do with the leadership points that Charles was raising a moment ago, how this is brought to people, that this is, you know, is this a tool or is this a hammer? You know, like what is this that we're talking about? Because it's very different than the way we operate today. And um, I cannot overemphasize the delicacy of this point. So there's a question here. I'm going to move around. I, I, we continue to welcome questions from the floor. This is great. So, uh, can I just add, while you're walking, Dan, I mean, part of the... Part of the real challenge is to make sure you're right, measuring the right things. And so um, I started, started telling the story a bit earlier about an, another initiative we have with that group, which was that exercise of breaking things down into very basic statements and then measuring to that. And so that, that in and of itself is a way you also measure transaction velocity, right? Because you start looking at how long it takes to do things. What are the, you start developing heat trends. And, and uh, across those standards, what are the things you're seeing that you're always needing to escalate, because that's what we track. We would track whether or not you got the standard at first instance, whether or not it was an escalation, whether or not it was a complete deviation, or whether or not you didn't get it at all, right? So there's sort of four degrees of com compliance, as we like to say, and then that's captured. No one's graded on whether or not they have a lot of red or a lot of yellow or a lot of green in terms of the performance of their particular transactions. What we look at for the collective benefit of the group is, where are we seeing trends? And so what are things that we think we're asking are now off market or the dynamic is changing and why is that changing? Or is there things that we can do to address our own positioning? Is it, do we need to educate our own internal stakeholders, right, around what they're asking for? Because a lot of these things that we drive in these contracts are not, it's not the lawyers ask. It's some other functional group within the institution that's asking for something. And so, again, it enables a very different conversation because often, when we're faced with that situation, we go back for direction, and it's a, it's a one-off, 
right? You may be speaking to one of the five people in that particular group and they don't do transactions on a day-to-day -day basis and so they'll give you the answer to them that makes the most sense in the time, not knowing the bigger picture or the context. And so if you start measuring those things, you can go back with a story to say, listen, you guys have asked for this. I can tell you the last 30 times we've tried to get it, we've only gotten it twice. And so clearly we need to adjust this or I'm gonna keep coming back to you. <laughs> and so either you, you, you help us refine what it is you think you need and then we'll articulate that in a way and then that'll create less tension for you between us and we'll allow things to progress a bit more smoothly, so. I think there was a question, Dan, you had. Uh Okay, great. Hi, uh, my name is Claire, and I, I'm just listening to this and thinking about um, globalization in the legal industry and the changes that are happening, particularly what we're seeing in Europe with the big four getting into legal, and they're way ahead in terms of technology and data and analytics compared to law firms generally. That's a gross generalization, I know that, but I think we'd all agree that <clears throat> that world exists in terms of the big four and analyzing data. So when there is a little bit of anxiety, like we were talking about, about sort of measuring things, isn't there sort of a broader global message that we have no choice? It's kind of linked to what we were saying earlier about the pace of change, the pace of technology and its impact on business for sure, but now, now law firms and companies are institutions that typically had resisted a lot of, of technology. So I'm just interested in your perspective. For what it's worth, my, my <laughs> perspective is this is what the future looks like. I mean, you can embrace it now or not, but this is what it looks like. And, um, and I, I, think it, I think that's actually not the question. I think the question is, is the complexity of, of the utilization of data analytics plus the kind of conventional soft management skills. Like it's not one exclusively and it's not the other exclusively. This yeah. is not a silver bullet for management that, that is in substitution for all other management skills. This is a tool designed to give insight to enable better management. Well, I, I, can, I can say like probably the most thematic thing I've been seeing is gone are the days of not being able to demonstrate value, right? So how do you do that? Well, you have to measure something, <laughs> right? And so you're not gonna get the full picture. Uh, you know, one of the other areas I support in the bank is marketing. And I can tell you they're facing the same challenge. You know, the marketing as a function as it's always been a bit of smoke and mirrors, right? Spend money here and we'll maybe get some traction here and some customer uptake here, but none of it was ever really measurable. Well, I can tell you the, the, you know, the presence now of selling online and through digital and managing your ad space through digital, it's all tracked, right? And so marketing departments are now getting their heads around sort of demonstrating that value. And so I think that that's where we are right now is like, Soon, I still think there is tolerance for it, but the pendulum will, I think, continue to shift. And, um, you know, our business colleagues have been after us for a long time to say, you know, show, show me how you are adding value. And so I think we need to be much more creative about how to capture that and uh, articulate it. 
And in terms of capturing how value is added, um, we need trust, we need buy-in. Mona, just before we move to the question, um, so your expertise includes uh, bias, privacy, compliance. So uh, how do you see standardized data and you know alternative data sources being used and playing into the role of, of trust in data analytics? Thank you. Um, I think it's extremely important for us to understand that data is limited to the quality of the data itself that it presents. So if you have a set of data and that data is not adequately representing the group or that certain type of contract or that certain type of process that you're trying to formulate into an AI solution, you're not going to get the value that you're looking for out of that. In particular, um, and my passion lies very deeply with, is with females and the lack of um, equal bias is what I'll call it, um, one-sided versus the other-sided. Females don't have a voice the way, um, and that comes through data, that comes through legal contracts, what type, you know, it, it matters what gender is putting that contract together. It matters how that contract is presented. If you're trying to run analytics on a contract, the terms, the verbiage, how it's presented, the order, the risk, all of that plays a key role uh, in that. Now, there has been no research done on this, and if there is, it's very little. Um, but that also needs to be taken into place. Privacy is another one. You want to ensure that whatever data you're using, there's lots of data out there that if you merge the data sets could actually be used for social good. However, because of the fact that this data cannot speak to each other, because of the privacy and the ethics around it, you have data out there that we cannot harness as a human race. We can't bring it together and actually put it into place for good. So privacy, I think, also is a big one. Um, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica is a pitfall of you sharing your information on Facebook and another organization coming in and, and you know, profiling you. To some degree, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's not the point of the discussion. Is it, it's my choice. Do I want to be profiled or not? That's actually the, the key there. But I think the biggest, um, the biggest pitfall of any data is the bias, the inherent bias in the data that's collected. And that could be from the viewpoint of the individual that's composing it, from the person down to whom your, your sample size is. You can't take the entire world's population and get data, the same data set from everybody. It'll never happen. So who are you actually targeting to get that data from and how are you then using that? So you're talking not just about bias in terms of uh, sample set selection, but you're also talking about confirmation bias in terms of how we build the models and whether we're um, thinking uh, about, we're assuming what causes the fire and therefore we're not really seeing what in fact caused the fire. Is that right? So I'm an analytics, uh, master's of analytics from the Schulich School of Business, and now I run the two, help Murat run the two programs. And I think it's equally important to understand that the programmer, the data scientist that's now sitting down with the sets of data, has their own bias that they're now looking at through the lens that they're applying when they're trying to create these models. If you have a certain subsect or a certain and I don't want to identify, but if you have a certain type of data scientist that's going to run majority of your models, that di data scientist is going to bring inherent bias to your modeling. Then your data is going to have its own biases, and then you're going to be in a position where you're running a model which may have great lift, which would be higher accuracy, but there's inherent data based inherent data bias based into it. So that's kind of a huge, huge pitfall um, that will come of this. We're in infancy right now, and it's great to hear TD's story. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, um, I would say you layer, on, you layer onto that AI and the ability of AI, what does AI need to learn in these data, right? And so what are you training it on? If you're training it on data that's inherently biased, then you're gonna develop a smart machine that is inherently biased, <laughs> right? And so it's recognizing that and then um, 
you know, I would just say like one of the things, I, I, the, the conversations really, this is fascinating to me because one of the things we did just release with the Vector Institute out of Toronto was a position paper on the responsible, use of responsible, using AI responsibly. And the three things that we articulated as sort of headwaters of what we need to focus on as uh, financial institutions as we start to leverage AI more and more were bias, understanding <laughs> bias, explainability, transparency in relation to the model, and three, probably the most important was diversity. Yeah. And diversity in the sense of who is developing these programs. And so, um, it's, anyways, it's all, it's, it's one of the so before we move to the question, you used a word, uh, Charles, that I'm not sure everyone is familiar with, which is explainability relating to AI and machine learning. Um, can you maybe just tell the audience a bit about that before we move to our, our final question? Sure. Um, and just to be clear, I am not a scientist by nature. <laughs> I, I have a technical background in the sense that before I became a lawyer, I worked at IBM for a number of years as a, a software coder. And so I have, I have a... I can speak the language, but I will not be able to articulate for you exactly uh, the way the models work. Um, but one of the particular um, challenges in leveraging AI is being able to explain how a decision is made. It's also called transparency. Um, to a certain extent, as a regulated institution, we have an obligation to our customers to be able to articulate to them why a decision was made in terms of how something was done to either adjudicate a loan or decide on some course of action. Um, and so the practical uh, answer is, is that as, as we, uh, where we are today vis-a-vis -vis our understanding and development of AI, and in particular in the machine learning space, is that we actually don't know how a lot of these higher level um, neural networks make decisions. We, we can measure the output to determine accuracy and performance, but the, the, the pure science around how decisions are actually made, uh, we don't know. And so that creates a really challenging position for us to be able to explain to the nth detail why a decision or how a decision was made. And then I would just, I would add to that this complexity. I mean, at TD, we're lucky in the sense that we are building these uh, capabilities internally. And so um, we have a, a whole function dedicated specifically to artificial intelligence. Um, but often, as an institution, you're going to be bringing in third-party capabilities to help with uh, some AI capabilities. And in that case, it's even more challenging because you're entering into a realm which, which we know very well from the commercial context is that there's proprietary information around how those algorithms work. And that's not something that a technology company will necessarily want to share because it's what they, what is their key asset. <laughs> and so we have this really difficult position of putting ourselves, that we're putting ourselves in the sense of trying to be able to explain how a decision is made without having access to the underlying uh, information. Right, that's very uncomfortable. Cold comfort to a client who gets denied a loan and then they ask the bank and then you are, or one of your colleagues in the, is in the position of asking the provider and they don't know either. Um, so we had a question. Uh, was that from, uh, Dan has the mic there. Yeah, you know, this just goes back. It was more of a comment on when, uh, the fact that you were able to successfully make that transformation within the legal department. We were talking about whether um, whether lawyers are comfortable being 
um, evaluated in that way. But I think it sounds like you really succeeded in letting them know this was to their advantage, right? So if, if it's something that allows them to focus on the more meaningful work, I would think that that becomes a strong recruiting tool for you as you're building your team. So thank you for sharing the story. Great. So just before we um, close out, I was just wondering if there are any elephants in the room in terms of uh, promises and pitfalls that we need to call out for discussion on a following panel, which will be discussing um, recipes for successful analytics programs. Um, you know, there, there are just so many um, instances and stories in the press these days of data getting, a, getting poor press, right? Um, data so mining, NSA, Snowden, Cambridge Analytica, you know, um, data manipulation, now the term digital civil war is being floated about. There's a new book on that um, and, you know, written in conjunction with uh, speculation regarding the integrity of election processes around the world. So this really has, it's a, it's a huge ecosystem with a lot of implications. So I guess my last question is, how do we move forward um, so we can transition into the next panel uh, and they'll be telling, they'll be sharing all their secrets about their analytics uh, recipes. So how do, we, how do we balance promises and pitfalls and move forward? And uh, Dan, I think you had some ideas about this. So I, I, when I lecture, I always start by asking people if they've seen Moneyball. What's the show of hands in the room? Okay, so maybe just north of 50%. Um, I saw a, a Major League Baseball interview given late last week. So within the last seven days, with one of the... Um, and I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but with one of the architects of Sabermetrics. Sabermetrics is basically the baseball equivalent of uh, data analytics. And, uh, and he, what he was talking about was, was the success that teams have with Sabermetrics. And there are two significant things which have happened in the evolution of about 25 years of Sabermetrics. The first is they have continued to improve the technology. And, and what that means now is that, you know, the baseball statistics began with, you know, simple experiential things like, you know, how many hits do you get when you go to the bat to, you know, what's the speed of the bat through the strike zone to uh, we're now down to being able to measure the rotation of the seams on the baseball. And, and so as all this new technology has come in, it has improved the quality of data. And, and so the gentleman was talking about that and he said really that's the first thing that's happened in the evolution of Sabermetrics. The second thing is a very basic management thing. The teams that are successful with Sabermetrics, and this, this is very much to a point that Charles made earlier, go where the Sabermetrics tell them, even if it's not what they were expecting. And they manage according to the objective data. And, and then they do it consistently. And those teams rise to the top. And he said, you know, so all the teams are employing sabermetrics now. The teams that are having success, that's why they're having success. It was a very interesting comment. Very simple in some respects, yet complex in execution, I think. So I, when I look at a story like that, I think that's what it looks like for us in the world of law. I think we're in the relative infancy of beginning to use data so we're kind of back at the slightly past experiential data. Um, and I think the, the, the success is all about continuing to improve that data through technology and otherwise, and then to begin to manage consistently and effectively utilizing that data and going where the data tells us. That's what I think the future looks like for, for law firms. 
essentially you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and following where the, and trusting it, right? I think that's exactly right, and, and being open to being surprised if that's what happens. And, uh, and we've talked about the importance of the integrity of the data, transparency, so that you have confidence in, in the quality of your data, that it's not garbage in and garbage out, assuming you don't have that problem and your confidence is high. I think this is what it looks like, you know, and I think it, it'll be incremental. And I think that data will continue to improve and, and grow as, a, as kind of a, a deeper data lake, as we were saying. David, you're hovering over me. Yeah. I, I am. I'm doing a Bill Clinton on you, actually. So uh, good to see you mobile. Good to see you mobile. Um, but actually, it's interesting. We have a phrase internally, which is called the tyranny of the hunch. And we've worked with companies where they think that um, they're saying, look, all of our risk is minimal because 75% of our contracts on our paper and when you do the analysis we found that it was 25 and so the tyranny of the hunch is actually the thing that holds things back and if you if you go to that Moneyball movie you will find that they will say things at the beginning like it sounds it's the sound off the bat right that's how I know he's good it's not actually when it came to it the Oakland A's actually created a team of misfits a bit like our panel earlier actually so, so, so that's absolutely true. So the tyranny of the hunch, you, you do data analytics in your mind already. That's, this whole thing is about demystifying. You do it already. The point is, actually, you make those assumptions about how quickly you're going to get to work based upon your hunch about the traffic and the time and the weather. You don't actually do any analytics of that. You already do it in your mind. You know what the value of your rental property or your property is based on a hunch. You don't do it on square footage and, and actually analytically. So we already do it. That's why it should be, shouldn't be a surprise. You just do it in a different format. I mean, that's the way I see it anyway. So if I can just finish with one, one metaphor for you. I, I think the moment in, um, in Moneyball to go back and watch is about a five minute scene when Billy Bean has introduced Pete into a room filled with scouts and that is a perfect metaphor. The lawyers are the scouts. You know, they work on the benefit of 20 years of experience. They, they know what a good pitcher looks like. They, you know, they've seen a million of them. This guy's a good pitcher. Um, in that room, I'm probably Pete, you know, in the corner with crunching numbers and, and guys like Charles McCarriger and David are, are the Billy Beans of the world. That is, that's the, that's the tension in the, in the legal world right now. And it's really well done in that moment as those two cultures collide. So that, that, would, be, that would be my response. Thanks. Any final thoughts from our other our panelists? Charles, Mona? I would just say don't underestimate the activity around data hygiene. It's, um, especially if you're a large institution who has years and years of data in disparate areas, it is a substantial investment, both in terms of time and capability. Um, and the, the difficult conversation always is around how can you demonstrate my ROI? And again, it comes back to this thematic issue around demonstrating value, right? And so it's, 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 it's a difficult exercise. Don't be discouraged. Um, you know, to a certain extent, you have to get some, some faith and some trust in the system. But, if, you know, my advice to you is start small. <laughs> Start identifying through an exercise some tangible benefits. That'll get you buy-in, and then and then you start opening up to uh, bigger and bigger and broader things. So. 
Mona, anything? I just have to reiterate, I think it's equally important to understand the value of the data. I think it's important to understand data hygiene, but to know that what data you're working with to ensure it's, it's as fair and as clean and as accurate as it can be, ensuring that you may have a multiple set of eyes on that data, running multiple models, and then maybe having an averaging or a congruence of all of them coming together, I think is essential. Digital transformation at the helm is extremely important. It is probably pricey, it's probably timely, but it's not something that can be avoided. So the best way to step forward would be small, but definitely taking that step forward is key, key and critical. Can, can I just make a comment on that though? Um, and we've come across this dilemma quite a lot when we're introducing analytics to lawyers. And they say, well, okay, um, what are you gonna charge me? Well, I'm gonna charge you X. Okay, but we will happily work on a contingent success fee. And then there's a pause and then they say, can we do hourly? And, it, and, and it's like, like you might just get a little bit richer than we wanted you to. So we're, we actually are very happy with contingent fees, actually, because we actually know that there's money, there's gold in them, their hills or something. That's what you say, isn't it? Well, Virginia, I think. And so that's the interesting thing about it. Um, lawyers will challenge you on success and then say, well, that sounds too successful to me. So it's quite an interesting paradigm in data. They believe it, but they don't. But they, then they do and they don't. So um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but also don't be fooled. We're um, much closer to being moneyballed ourselves than we think. So if you look at Inc.com, there's an article right now on Microsoft People Analytics and how they're in, uh, using it to measure management performance at the uh, near C-suite level. They're prescribing uh, optimal working hours for management, how to run meetings, uh, meeting hours, meeting logistics, uh, all sorts. Of, even it's going to go over into voice recognition. So uh, receiving prompts as to when you need to offer an open-ended question, when you need to slow your speech, when you need to uh, speed it up. So and speaking of uh, speeding it up, we will uh, end the panel. And thank you so much. Thank you.